Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is Leonard Slatkin. He's the music director of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and the principal guest conductor of the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. In addition to his duties in the United States, he'll begin a new position with the National Orchestra of Lyon next season. He also spends a great deal of time working with young musicians at conservatories, at summer festivals, and through the National Conducting Institute, a program he founded and also directs. He visits Indiana University a couple times every year to conduct an orchestra at the Jacobs School of Music. And he came into the WFIU studios on just such a visit. Leonard Slatkin, thanks so much for joining me. Very nice to be with you. Something people might not know is that you're a huge baseball fan. What's your team? My team is the St. Louis Cardinals because my grandfather, upon emigrating from Russia in 1913, settled there. My dad was born there. He was the concertmaster of the St. Louis Symphony for a while. I spent 27 years there as assistant and associate, as well as music director. And my son was born there, although he only spent two years. Ultimately, you support the team where you have your most important familial roots. All good reasons, but how do the folks in Detroit feel about that? They know that I'm not a fan of the designated hitter and that the American (laughs) League is on the side. It was a little tough before I took the job because Detroit played St. Louis in the World Series and St. Louis won uh, four years ago. So now I have to be a bit careful. So I guess I root for the Tigers as long as the main season is still going on. And if it got to the point where the Tigers had to play the Cardinals, I would probably get out of both towns. (laughs) Right. Go to Europe for that. Uh, You're also writing a book. Tell me a little bit about that. The book is an outgrowth of, in a way, the teaching experiences I've had here at IU. Although it's not a textbook. It's a book that's meant to illuminate both the interested musical public and other musicians themselves. It concerns itself with the actual profession of conducting. How do you get into it? What does a music director do? What's it like working in the opera house? What obligations do you have? How do you work with composers? So even though there are elements in the book that are related to my life and elements where there are some portions I have to talk about technical matters conducting, It's still meant for the general public, and the book is going to be called Conducting Business. No deadline, but I'd say I'm probably three-quarters of the way through it, and I'm at the point where I need the help in research and some very good editing. And your copious amounts of free time you're writing this book. Well, I, I do write sort of as the spirit moves me. I'll sit down, and all of a sudden, 10, 12 pages will just fly out like that. In fact, as we're talking... I finally decided, okay, I should see what this thing actually looks like in print form as opposed to on the computer. So I will pick up after we speak uh, a copy of it to see how many pages is it. Is it too long? What do I need to fill out? Because the computer is wonderful. But still, there's nothing like having the pages in your hand and flipping them through to see what really what happens. You're a big writer on the Internet as well. So yeah. we'll talk about your blog a little bit later. It's a, a very interesting thing you do on a really regular basis. But as we're talking about your conducting career, let's start off by defining some terms for our listeners. So what are the duties of a music director? A music director, by title, doesn't really have to be the conductor, but it does help. The music director's job is to establish a set of parameters under which his or her orchestra 
works year in, year out. You develop the sonic personality. You put together the programs for a season. You discuss the guest conductors, guest artists. Basically, the profile of the whole orchestra is in your hands. You're running it in much the same way a CEO is running a company. Then principal guest conductor? I go to Pittsburgh, as I did with the Royal Philharmonic in London, for three weeks a year. My job there is that I do more concerts other than the music director, but I don't really get involved in the politics of it all. I don't have to worry about hiring or dismissals. I don't have to worry about union contracts. I just come and spend time hopefully complementing the repertoire that's done by the music director. In some ways, that sounds like a better gig. It depends on what you enjoy doing. I happen to like the administrative part very much. A lot of my colleagues don't. In fact, they would just as soon stay away from it. And when you have a job in Europe, for the most part, you don't get involved in the same way. They might be called music directors, but they're more apt to be called principal conductors or chief conductors. And their job is just do more weeks than anybody else. The orchestra itself might hire the players who come in to join those ranks without the music director being there in some cases. For me, I like the idea that for better or worse, it's my orchestra, and therefore I want to be held responsible for both the things that go right and those that go wrong. Then talk a little bit about this position you've just taken in France that's going to start next season. The Orchestre National de Lyon is one of only three cities, Lyon, that has a full-time professional symphony orchestra, Paris and Toulouse being the others. The impetus here was, for me at age 66, to simplify my life. Up till now, it's been a music directorship in the United States, and then travel and conduct an orchestra here, an orchestra there, week after week, I found myself in the position of getting tired of it. I'm tired of airport security. I'm tired of having to pack this much. And there are other things I want to do. The orchestra in Lyon is a wonderful orchestra. You can certainly argue whether or not it's the best in France. Of course, I would think so. And we have a wonderful time together. It's a fantastic city. And I feel that I can do something of benefit with an orchestra based out of there, both for the city itself and in the national and international community. So if I have that base, plus my one in Detroit, where I spend 16 weeks, Lyon will be about 12 or 13 a year, Pittsburgh, where I do three, that pretty much takes care of what I would need to do in the winter. I don't have to go around from city to city conducting other orchestras anymore. Still a pretty crazy schedule. A little bit. Not so bad. You started off in St. Louis. Well, you didn't start off, but you spent 17 years in St. Louis. As a music director. Music but director. 10 years prior to that in various secondary capacities as its assistant, its associate, principal guest. I think they actually asked me to be music director because they ran out of titles. <laughs> nice. From St. Louis, you went to the National Symphony, which probably an orchestra with a higher profile, but... From what I've been reading, some people considered lower on the artistic rung. Of course, a lot depends on what one considers to be high and low. I try to go to places that I think can use my services. I don't think about ratings or rankings. First of all, they're arbitrary. They might be based on the budget of an orchestra. Certainly the National Symphony had a 
higher budget than St. Louis did. And there were people who felt that musically it was a step down. But I didn't think so at all. I thought that here was an opportunity to place a very good orchestra in a much higher artistic profile. There they were at the Kennedy Center, seat of the nation's capital, and their presence musically needed to be stronger. So my job was to try to really give them a more secure base artistically. And for the most part, I think we accomplished that pretty well in 12 years. The orchestra did a number of tours with me. We recorded a lot. Uh, people saw me doing a great deal of American repertoire in the nation's capital. I thought that was really critical. So I look back on those years as being very fruitful. There were there are problems as well. You're going to have that anytime you deal with a bureaucracy. And the Kennedy Center was unique in that it operated under the ages of two boards of directors. One was the orchestra itself, and the second was the Kennedy Center. And sometimes that border wasn't so clearly defined, and fundraising became a little more problematic for me personally. I like to get into it and do it. But in Washington, I really didn't do as much as I expected to. And then after a while, I think the orchestra said, well, We've gotten to a certain point, and we would like perhaps somebody else to take us to another point. And they will start this season, I believe, the end of this week with their new music director, Christoph Eschenbach. And I wish him all the best. I think it should be a wonderful situation for him. He's coming to a very good orchestra that, that needs a good spiritual lift right now, and I think he can give it to him. From the National Symphony, he went to the Tr Detroit Symphony, started that in 2008. Detroit, not necessarily known for its classical music scene. So well, why'd that's you go not to entirely true. So Detroit was it. one of the major recording orchestras in this country in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s under Paul Paré and continued to do that under Neme Yarve. They were a huge force, uh, both for Mercury Records and then Chandos. So they were known very well in that respect. We were talking about rankings and ratings earlier, which is right now an issue with the orchestra. They are the 10th highest paid orchestra in the country. And to them, that's a source of pride. Right now, the negotiations they're having would take them below that. And the question that's being asked is, can you retain really strong artistic profile if the salary may not be commensurate with other orchestras? That That's a cat and mouse issue or uh, however you want to say it, because we can't know that. I would never say, for instance, that my former orchestra in St. Louis or Minnesota or Cincinnati or Indianapolis were not strong artistically just because they weren't paid as one of the top 10 orchestras. So for me, that's a secondary issue. What is important, though, is to maintain the integrity of a financial pay base that continues to attract the highest quality of musicians when we have vacancies and to keep as many as we can of those who are already here. It's a great orchestra, and it plays in one of the greatest halls in the world, Orchestra Hall in Detroit is a remarkable facility. It has only a little over 1,600 seats, so it's much smaller a hall by American standards, but much closer to its great European colleagues in terms of the size of the hall itself. It creates an intimate sound, but a very warm and rich one as well. And that was one of the things that took me to Detroit. I felt even before the economic crisis hit, it was already struggling. The car industry was falling apart. The contributions for the orchestra were down. Everybody knew there were financial hurdles ahead. And I don't go to a place where I can just stand still and do maintenance. I go to a place where I think I can do some good. And in this particularly 
turmoil-filled time, I think I'm exactly where I need to be. It's an orchestra I love and that I cannot afford to see diminished. We're definitely going to talk about this idea of pay versus artistic quality, how those relate, uh, because we were affected by that here at Indiana University when Cleveland went on strike. So we'll come to that a little bit later. We've been talking a lot about rankings. So in, in 2008, Gramophone came out with their rankings of top 20 orchestras in the world. Royal Concertgebouw was listed as one, then seven American orchestras in the top 20. It seems like a personal choice, this this idea of orchestra rankings. So personally, what are the criteria you would use to rank orchestras? Well, I wouldn't to start with. The gramophone survey was quite different than how we traditionally think about orchestra rankings. It's certainly different in the way an orchestra would think about it. For instance, even though seven American orchestras were in their top 20, Philadelphia wasn't one of them. Didn't make make it through there, but there's very few people in the musical world who would not include Philadelphia as one of the world's great orchestras. Their rankings were based on judgments from critics who maybe hadn't heard all the orchestras on a regular basis in some cases. Certainly the Saito Kinen Orchestra, which is very good but only meets for a few weeks a year, is hardly in the same league as the Berlin Philharmonic, which plays every week. The same thing went for, uh, it was one other orchestra as well, that is a part-time orchestra, so I don't even know how they counted that. Some orchestras were put into the rankings there because they had an adventurous programming policy like Los Angeles. So for me, all I can do is say that the orchestras that have a very specific sonic profile are the ones I consider to be the best. That may not be for everybody. To me, if I work with the Czech Philharmonic, which was not on anybody's list, that's a great orchestra because they don't sound like anybody else. They have their own personality. And after all, this is something we need to look for more and more in our musical world. We expect it of our soloists and singers. We expect Renee Fleming to sound like Renee Fleming. We expect Yo-Yo to sound like Yo-Yo. But we should expect an orchestra to have its own profile as well. And for me, that's what makes a great orchestra. We're talking about orchestras, and you conduct opera around the world as well. But you have a special affinity for string quartets? Yes. The string quartet world probably, at least in my mind, represents the highest level of musical sophistication, both in the skills it takes to perform the music and the craft in which the composers created these works. With the exception of Mozart and possibly Benjamin Britten, it's hard to name a composer, for instance, who was equally successful in a body of works for the stage as well as for the string quartet. So we have in Verdi, what, one chamber music piece, but a world of fabulous stage works. And that you go to a composer like Beethoven, writes one opera, and people would argue that it's not so successful as an opera, but you have these incredible quartets that he produces. And then you have composers like Brahms, who never wrote an opera. And then you have other composers like Wagner, who never wrote chamber music. They seem to be somewhat exclusive of each other. Symphony World falls in between. There's Mahler, one of the great opera conductors of all time. Didn't write one. Didn't write a quartet either. So there's something a little bit about these different forms that makes it interesting. But if I had to pick a music to listen to that I simply couldn't do without, it's going to be the music of the quartet. For some reason, spirituality and musical invention 
comes forth in a way in a Beethoven or a Bartok or Schubert or Haydn or Mozart in a way they simply, to me, didn't get in other music. I regret that I will never conduct a work as great as Opus 132 of Beethoven, unless I choose to do a string orchestra, but that diminishes the intimate quality of the quartet. And I grew up with a quartet all my life. My parents were... That's right. They played in the Hollywood Bowl string they, quartet. Hollywood string quartet. Hollywood string quartet. And they were one half of the four. And then if they made discs that included a piano, my uncle would be the pianist. So that was three out of the four if it was a piano quartet. So I heard this music ever since I was, well, before I was born, I guess. And I fell in love with it. Well, we're going to hear one selection right now performed by the Hollywood String Quartet. You suggested that we play Close to You, performed by Frank Sinatra. Yes. And the String Quartet. I need to explain that, obviously. My parents had three lives in music when they came to the West Coast. They were one half of this great string quartet. My dad was the concertmaster of the orchestra at 20th Century Fox. My mother was the first cellist at Warner's, the first woman ever to hold a title position in an orchestra in the studios. And her brother, my uncle, was the staff pianist at Warner's. So they had the film world as well. The third part of their life was as a part of Capitol Records' popular music division. They recorded for Capitol under the guise of Hollywood String Quartet and made several really, really wonderful albums. But they also served as the concertmaster and first cellist for many of Capitol's pop artists, Nat King Cole, Nancy Wilson, George Shearing, and Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra developed a, quite an affection for my parents. He would not record without them. Ultimately, Sinatra said he wanted to do one of the early concept albums when that idea was really very fresh. And he wanted to feature the string quartet. This is before we had a word called crossover. Capitol Records didn't want to do it. They said, no, the quartet is on our classical label and you're on our pop label. And Sinatra said, look, unless you feature them with their names on the cover with me, I'm going to leave the label. So along with Nelson Riddle, the arranger, my parents recorded an album of very intimate songs. It has other instruments as well, but the quartet are the ones who are featured as the soloists. There are some people to this day who said that this album was misguided and others who said it was the best album Sinatra ever did. The album is called Close to You, and this is the title track.
Music performed by Frank Sinatra and the Hollywood String Quartet that was close to you. You're listening to Profiles here on WFIU. Our guest today is conductor Leonard Slatkin, and I'm Annie Corrigan. You have an active blog on the Internet. You update it monthly. Mm -hmm. How'd you get into that? About three years ago, I guess, I started hearing about other people in the classical industry who had websites. And my own agent said, you know, you ought to consider doing that. I said, why? Who cares? He said, no, it's how people find out about what you're doing, and you don't have to do anything for it, really. I said, all right, well, how much does it cost? And we got through all that stuff. And for a couple months, it went up, and I went, well, this is boring. I mean, all they're going to read are, he's going to be in you know, Chicago next week, and then he's in London. And it's, it's, I said, why don't I try writing for it? So I wrote an introductory, you know, welcome to the webpage. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but we'll see. Along with that, as... I started writing more just to keep it interesting. That's when the idea for the book kind of hit, coupled along with my starting teaching here at Indiana. And in a funny way, I've used the blog to refine my writing skills, which were minimal. But I knew that my speaking skills were not bad at all. What I needed to learn was how different the actual writing of material was than speaking it. I would say that some of what I write on the website is going to be in the book, but not much. Much much of the book is original and new material. Now I use the site, again, to refine the writing skills, for whatever they are, and to just keep people up to date on what's going on. Uh, sometimes there's a funny story along the way. Sometimes uh, it'll be a personal story, and sometimes it's just about what's going on. For instance, I will probably write about our discussion here today. You never know. I would love to read myself <laughs> on your blog. That'd be amazing. So we get an insight into who you are as a person. Was this a conscious choice? Well, it saves a lot of money in therapy bills. <laughs> it was a conscious choice. I thought, if I'm going to do this, why would I want to just essentially keep a travel log of what I do? It's not a diary, really. It's meant as, in some cases, a thought piece, ideas that people should think about. It's concerned in particular, when I can do it, my thoughts about music education. I try to bring that up when I can. The differences between professional life and leaving school. So, so young musicians have an idea of what's really going to be expected of them when they get out in the world. That's important to me now. So, yes, it's a conscious decision to be as variety as possible in the website. With all this new technology coming at us, we don't write letters anymore. No. And personal letters, that was sort of the way we got to know what happened behind the scenes in the 18th and 19th century. So were you thinking also perhaps about your legacy in starting this blog? Oh, no. I, I don't think about that at all. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not old enough yet to be worried about that. And actually, at this point, it, it's of so little concern. I just do what I want to do. Your point is interesting. I have a 16-year-old son, and I went to a hockey game in Detroit, and we were texting back and forth on our phones. And one of them said, Daniel, we could just be talking about this. <laughs> Why are we doing this? And I realized that one of the problems today, as far as I'm concerned, is we're afraid of direct communication. And we now use our telephones, a device meant for talking, to avoid talking to each other. 
And I'm a little scared about some of the technology, that it's moving us in directions that make us a little less personal and distant from society and each other. That's a very good point. Let's go back to the music and your promotion of new music. So I'm curious about the role of a conductor in promoting new music, because it seems like you actually have a lot of power in potentially making a composer's career by selecting a piece to perform with your various orchestras. So talk about that relationship. Over the years, performers have clearly developed relationships with composers, but this is actually mostly a device that began in the 20th century, because prior to that, the composers and the performers were one and the same. Brahms played his pieces, Chopin played his, Paganini played the violin caprices, so forth and so on. When we got to the 20th century, there was a split, and the performer became more interested in resurrecting the music of the past and leaving the writing to others. So then we had Stravinsky, and we had Schoenberg, and we had Prokofiev and Hindemith. Although they performed a little bit, they were known primarily for their writing, and other people would commission these pieces and play them. Much the same takes place today, except with conductors. Conductors and composers are still in existence. Look at Boulez or Bernstein or Ollie Ness and John Adams. And most of us who conduct also do some composing in some way. We may not put our works on public display very often, but we do it. In order for the legacy of music to be anything other than ephemeral, it has to survive by its proponents, the people who believe in it, who enjoy playing it, I want to present it to wide publics. So I've championed many composers in my time so far, mostly American composers, and primarily of schools of thought that I consider to be individual, but for some seem a bit on the conservative side. But that relationship becomes very important. If you just play a premiere and the piece dies after that, it's almost like, why do we even have the premiere? So I try in many cases not only to commission pieces to present them, but to do them often and in different places. So right now, if I do a new piece in Detroit, chances are it's going to pop up on the Lyon schedule and pop up in Pittsburgh and even pop up here. In fact, the piece we're playing of Cindy McTee is a piece I commissioned. We premiered it in June, and I'll be taking it all around. It's a great piece. Audience love it. Orchestra enjoys playing it. And it's a composer who should be more well-known. If I love the music and I'm in a position to present it, that's all I need to to do other than that. I try to keep it fresh. But on the other hand, everybody expects me to do, like, everything. And I can't do that. There's, there needs to be room for others. Let's hear another piece of music then. This was written in 1984. So not really new, but still well, new music. But it's a very unique work. Yeah, but it's by William Bolcom. Tell William me about Bolcom. it. It was written for the university at Ann Arbor, and because it was a university situation, he felt he could do anything. So the forces involved in this piece are immense. It makes Mahler's Eighth Symphony look like a Haydn string quartet. In addition to full orchestra, there are several large choruses. There's a chamber chorus. There's a children's chorus. There's a rock group. There's a jazz group. Uh, it goes on and on the list. There are nine soloists. So it's, it's immense. The work came out on Noxus about two years ago. It 
won four Grammys, which was the first time a classical album had ever won four. And it sold very well, and it still continues to sell now. It's hard to get a feeling for the scope of the piece based on one or two examples, but I think we're going to listen to the ending. And just imagine, if you will, after about two and a half hours of music, this joyous celebration done in a kind of classical music meets reggae style with, in this case, 645 people all going on at once. Music of William Bolcom here on WFIU's Profiles. That was Songs of Innocence and Experience, performed there by Leonard Slatkin and forces from the University of Michigan. And we listened to the final portion there. You're listening to Profiles here on WFIU. Our guest today is conductor Leonard Slatkin, and I'm Annie Corrigan. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So we talked about this a little bit already, but I want to give the listeners a background in the economic hard times that a lot of orchestras are going through, and we can talk a little bit more in depth about that. So the biggest news is obviously orchestras are having a hard time with finances because of the down economy. And perhaps the highest profile example of this was when the musicians of the Cleveland Orchestra went on strike earlier this year. Management asked them to take a 5% pay cut. They refused. Strike ensued, and their performance and residency at Indiana University Jacobs School of Music had to be canceled. So I want to quote the musician's statement here. This was written by Jeffrey Rathbun, who's an oboe player and the chair of the Musicians Negotiating Committee. He wrote this in January 2010. Quote, In our judgment, if we were to accept management's offer, it would be the beginning of the end of the Cleveland Orchestra as one of the leading ensembles in the world. Our reputation is at stake, and we have to stay competitive in compensation in order to stay competitive in quality. End quote. So my question is, is the quality of an orchestra really determined by how much they pay its musicians? Well, I guess we really wouldn't know that unless we saw it happen. As he says at the beginning, it's in his opinion. But we don't know that the quality would diminish. It, it's a, a guess. It's a little hard for me to believe that people still wouldn't want to come to play in the Cleveland Orchestra and a little hard to believe that people still wouldn't want to come and listen. 
in Detroit, we're going through something much more massive than this. The orchestra is being asked to take between a 22 and 28% cut. And the orchestra's actually volunteered the 22% in the first year. They want to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel after three years or so. And the management is saying, we don't know what it's like at the end of the tunnel. We can't guarantee that. The staff has already been cut with eight people eliminated, eight positions gone. The orchestra size has not been cut, although we, like many orchestras, are putting hiring freezes on several positions until a time when we think we can afford to have them back. But in the case of Detroit, this is the first orchestra that will probably see itself go to a, a lesser compensation level than any other percentage-wise. And it will probably knock them out for a while of this top ten. But who's to say that other orchestras won't be joining that group that's going to take the hits? So who knows what effect this will have on anybody, much less when you look at the talent pool that's out there amongst young people, whether it's here at Indiana University, whether it's at Juilliard, whether it's at Peabody, whether it's around the world. There are not that many jobs out there to be had. Good musicians are going to need to have jobs to work. So it's a question of will they come because of the money or will they be coming to these jobs because of the artistic inherent uh, nature of the orchestras they wish to go to? Will the orchestras be able to keep and sustain its players that it already has if the salary levels are lowered? But the question remains, where will they go if they don't? These are all things that we don't know. We, we have no idea what the answers are. Most of us who are performers have taken large cuts. I gave back four weeks of my salary for next season, so that represents, in my case, almost a 35% cut in my own pay scale. But I did it because I know I have to, and I know it's the right thing to do. I think boards need to realize that there's a certain level of sustainability that an orchestra needs to have to remain competitive, if you will, although I don't like that word at all. But at the same time, the orchestra needs, and I think does understand, that this is a time when you can't mess around. You have to take strong actions. And if you show strong sacrifices now, I think the ultimate result will yield well. But as Jeff says, it's my opinion. Well, let's look ahead five, ten years, if you can. Everything that's going on now, if you could foresee a change in how things are going to be run, mm -hmm. in the way music is going to be presented to audiences, everything in mm -hmm. five to ten years, what do you imagine? Well, let's assume that the government will continue to be very lax in its support of the arts in general for many reasons, but let's say the money's not there. So it still remains the focal point of the institution itself to be the educational arm for the arts and in music in particular. This is what I see. Not everybody agrees with me, and not everybody likes it, but it's what I think is a workable role model. Members of an orchestra who currently exist as the workforce probably shouldn't sacrifice too much and be asked to change radically from how they've been brought into the orchestra in the first place. But maybe a new set of criteria for those who are auditioning to come in may come into place. An orchestra operates on what we call service basis. 
They're usually eight to nine services a week, sometimes seven. Service is a two, two and a half hour period when you rehearse or play a concert. In many cases, say you play a Beethoven symphony, not all the players are needed, which means that they're getting paid not to play. But that could be the same for a relief pitcher in baseball. But baseball is a profit-making institution. It's different. What I think should happen is that players who come in should have should be judged not only in how they play, but what other skills do they have that they can bring to the table? Are they good teachers? Are they good communicators? Can they go out in the community and be helpful in fundraising? And to use this time when they might otherwise be occupied in services with the orchestra to be out there as part of the general workforce. More orchestra members have to become members of the board, so there's more integrated workforce. And an orchestra has to be that flexible. Quartets could be formed to go into schools and create programs where there are none. I do it all the time. I do it because I think it's part of my job. I do it without any compensation for it. I go give talks in schools. I conduct bands. I create some programs when I can. It's part of what I think I have to do. And I suspect most young people who come into the force also could think of this this way if we start training them soon enough. So that's what I see. I see a more flexible group calling itself an orchestra. I see it playing in other places other than its venue that it works in regularly. In Detroit, we do a lot of works now around town, playing in churches, in schools, in gymnasiums. We played at the Salvation Army one night. And you can't imagine how edifying this was for all of us. We loved it. We were bringing our message to people who had never heard it before. It was wonderful. And I think that's perhaps what, in, in my naive way, see as being possible 10 years from now. Well, you work with young musicians all the time here at Indiana University mm -hmm. and elsewhere. What advice would you give them, people who are trying to get these full-time jobs? I think there are a couple things. Go in it not thinking about how much money it is, but is it the right place for you to be? Does it match the kind of skills you bring to that orchestra? You're auditioning them as well as they are auditioning you. So I think a young player needs to look at that very carefully. Don't try to take this in one big leap. Go slow. There's plenty of time in music. Music doesn't have an age limit. You can keep going until, well, until you can't do it anymore. And even then, some people keep doing it. So judge where you want to have your job opportunities. Try to do what's satisfactory. Don't take a place that's going to just beat you down because you needed the job. Find the right job. And it's there. Well, we're nearly to the end of our time. One more piece of music. You sent us the Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber, and I looked in our catalog. We have two different recordings with you conducting the St. Louis Symphony. One is nine minutes, and one is seven and a half minutes. Two very different tempos here. Talk about the different interpretations. The reason I asked to have this played reflects on something that we celebrated a couple days ago. On September 11th, 2001, I was in London. I was getting ready to do The Last Night of the Proms, which is a very celebratory, very jingoistic, flag-waving, raucous event at the Albert Hall for 6,000 people there and millions worldwide. After the attacks, we realized we couldn't do that. We had to change the nature of this evening. I offered to withdraw from it since it's a very English festival and maybe somebody more attuned to a festive spirit, 
would be appropriate. But they said, no, you're the chief conductor. You need to do it. Well, we altered the program, gave it a much more serious tone. Nobody was to come dressed in Union Jacks. No Razzy Noise toys. No Vuvuzelas or whatever they happen to have. And I insisted that the Barbara Dajo be put. The Barbara Dajo has gone through all kinds of incarnations. That night, on September 15th, I turned to the audience and I talked to them about the music for mourning, what we do in tragic times. In England, they play the Nimrod variation from Elgar's Enigma. Once we started, I couldn't tell you at that moment how slow or what happened. But I did know that something was overtaking us on stage. By the end, I was in tears. The audience was weeping. And somehow we got through it. I went off stage, collapsed in the dressing room. You can listen to the recording you're going to hear now. But you can also go to YouTube or any of the video sites. If you look up Barbara Adagio, Proms 2001, you can see what is one of the five most watched videos. And it's of us giving this performance. There are two versions there. One is the feed that happened at the concert itself. But the other is a montage that was put together of mostly people standing in total shock. Firefighters, policemen, nurses, as this music is playing. And I think we learn something very important from this, that it's still possible to have a piece of music move us in a way that words cannot. When the Congress convened on that day, what did they do? No speeches. They sang on the Capitol steps. They used music. And that's what we used on this night. Anybody who was there, or mostly anybody who watches this particular video, remembers it. Music of Samuel Barber, that was the Adagio for Strings, performed by the St. Louis Symphony, directed by Leonard Slatkin, who is our guest today on Profiles. He's the music director of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. He was in Bloomington, Indiana, to conduct the Jacob School of Music Philharmonic Orchestra. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. For WFIU's Profiles, I'm Annie Corrigan. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.